things that I want to mention to you is, first of all, um, there is one announcement that I want to make. And uh, do we have a screen for that, the men's retreat? Or, yeah. So uh, I'd like all the men to get out their phones and look in your calendars and make sure your calendar is clear September 27th through 29th. Uh, we want to get that word out there a few months in advance. Uh, we have a men's retreat that's planned that we will be responsible for with uh, two or three other churches that have been invited to be part of that. And so uh, we'd like you to make that a priority in your schedule and um, plan to be there if at any way possible. So make a note of that. And also, um, I wanted to mention as well a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we want to pray for Karen. In fact, I'm going to take a moment to pray for her in just a minute. She's having knee replacement surgery number one tomorrow. And then number two will come following that, I'm sure. But uh, we want to pray for her to have uh, God's grace and healing quickly. So let's take a moment and pray for that, and I'll make it one other, a couple other announcements too. So would you extend your hands towards Karen as I pray? So, Father, we just come to you as a God of healing and strength, and we pray for Karen right now. We pray for her knees. We pray for healing to take place, and we pray that you would do it in whatever way necessary. Use the surgeons, and we pray that you would cause healing to take place quickly, recovery to be quick and sure, and that you would give her strength in, in the knee that's worked on tomorrow, and we just pray that you give her grace, a good rest tonight as she anticipates the morning. And just keep your hand of protection upon her, we ask in your name. And everybody said amen. Amen. The other thing I want to bring you up to date about, two more things. Um, this doesn't mean a lot to uh, some of you, but some of you will remember an elderly gentleman that was, used to be part of the church named Al Reimers. And Al apparently took a fall, we're not sure exactly when, and was in his backyard for a few days, unattended, undiscovered. And when they found him, he was pretty disoriented. And uh, so he's now in a, a nursing home in Sayville, um, not wanting to eat. And uh, Al, I think, is probably, what, 85, 86, somewhere in there? Yeah, so he was a longtime member of the Christ Community Church that was here for many, many years. And so I want to remember him. And then also, um, and I apologize to our guests that are here this morning, just a few family things for us to get up to date on. Uh, Karen, I mean... Uh, Kathy Trudell is home uh, healing and uh, went to her surgeon on Wednesday and everything's going well. Nicole uh, had a shunt put in her head to drain the fluid off her brain and she's home. She got home yesterday and seems to be doing okay, but long road ahead. So continue to pray for them. That's why we haven't seen them for many, many weeks because they've just been, I think Kathy's on surgery number three uh, within the last few months. So all right, if you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to James chapter 1, verse 12. I want to read through these verses and then uh, make some comments this morning. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought, forth, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. We're going to unpack all these verses here in this morning a little bit at a time, but to begin with, to kind of lay the foundation, how many of you have taken advantage of, is it called 123andMe or Ancestry.com, you know, the uh, DNA tests that are available, all right? You know, one of the scary things about those DNA tests is that you find out that you had a, a, a great-great-grandfather that was a stagecoach robber, you know, or spent time in prison because he was this axe murderer or something like that. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's the risky part of all of that. And then, uh, you know, then there's the, the discoveries, the great stories that happened. We, uh, Kathy got contacted by a cousin that she didn't even know she had uh, that through one of the DNA tests found out uh, where her relatives were and one of her relatives was Kathy's mom, her, would be her aunt, I guess, and uh, Kathy, her cousin, and you know, all these years she's been looking for her family. You know, so she found her family through uh, a DNA test. Uh, another thing I want to ask you to begin with this morning <coughs> is uh, how many of you know what a genogram is? Anybody know what that is? Huh. I should have I had one ready to put out there, but let me explain it, and you'll have to kind of picture it. It'd be easier to show it to you, but I, I'll, I'll try to describe it the best I can. A genogram is basically diagramming your family tree. And it's a counseling tool, uh, a technique to kind of look at your family of origin, to figure out some different dynamics that occurred in your family system, generally going back one or two generations at the most, recognizing that there are different dynamics that are part of your family system that have impact and influence and contribute to the way you relate to certain situations. Like, for example, uh, one pastor I know of did a genogram with his wife, and in his family, there was a lot of conflict. And one of the things that existed that was that whenever, uh, like his brother, when uh, he turned 18 years old, he moved out of the house as fast as he could and for 10 or 15 years didn't talk to his father. There was that kind of breakdown in relationship. And this particular pastor, in describing the genogram that he had done, he said when he turned 18, he couldn't wait to get out of the house because it was nothing but conflict with his father. And so uh, later in life, he and his wife had raised four adult daughters. And it was time for them to launch out of the nest and they were uh, off to college. And some of you can identify with all this. They're off to college and looking for settling into their own places. And he was going through a lot of anxiety about it, just really frustrated about the whole situation. And he realized where the anxiety was coming from. 
It was coming from his family of origin. He realized that from his past, he was recognizing conflict that occurred there, and he was, he was letting that conflict influence the present. And his wife reminded him. She said, we did not raise our family that way. We raised our daughters to launch them, to celebrate them leaving. This is not a sad day for us in the sense that there's conflict like it was for your family. And when he realized that, he was able to change the way he was viewing things because of uh, recognizing an influence on his family system. So all of us experience that. All of us have different dynamics that come where if you, if you did a diagram that went back to your, maybe your great-grandparents or your grandparents, your grandfather and grandmother and your father and mother, there might be straight lines that represent good relationship. But then there might be some broken lines because there's a divorce or there's a breakdown in relationship or there's a death that occurs in the family. And so then there's another line that comes over. And, uh, and some of you have genograms that will have lines all over the place because you've got half-brothers and step-brothers and sisters and all sorts of different dynamics that occur. And uh, probably the case is that none of you in this room have a genogram that has all perfectly straight lines where there's not conflict, there's not a break in relationship. All of us have something going on in our family system that has a breakdown. <clears throat> and so it's our, it's our family system, it's who we are that represents the identity that we live out of. And we know that Jesus lived out of a particular family system. He described it. Do you know what it was? His description about his family system was, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And uh, so I guess if you think about it, what I should be saying in terms of the relationship to my own father is if you've seen me, you've seen my dad. And for some of you, you, you would say, uh, you've, if you've seen me, you've seen my, no, I don't want you to see my dad and me. You know, I mean, that's different. But Jesus gives us an identity that changes all of that. Because we should be secure, excited, filled with joy if we are representatives of our Father. Just as Jesus was filled with confidence in His sense of identity of who He was. When you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And so all of us as believers receive this particular honor. The honor we have is a family name. It's a family name that came even to the early church. They were called Christians because their, their, their identity was with Christ. So they became Christians in the sense of that family identity. And God honors us for protecting the family name. There's one phrase that all of us should desire to hear at the end of the day. Do you know what that phrase is? <clears throat> Starts with well. Well done, good and faithful servant. God will give us a reward at the end of the days based on our intensity and our intention to be faithful to honor His name and protect His family name. So, <clears throat> This passage gives us a choice. <clears throat> and the choice is to be either a son of the enemy who tempts you to be something that you're not supposed to be, that represents temptation and sin and failure and brokenness, or you have a choice of being the son of a father 
who defines the destiny of your life and articulates it and lets it work itself out in such a way that you have uh, confidence in who you are. And not only do you have confidence in who you are, but you have confidence in your ability to bring influence, the influence of the Father's kingdom into the lives of other people. And so we're not supposed to be a son that the enemy tempts us to be. We're, bo- we're supposed to be the son or a daughter that the Father destines us to be. So that's what we want to wrestle with this morning. So if we, can, if we have that passage, we can put it back up there, Emily, and we'll start with verse 12 <clears throat> and talk first of all about our spiritual DNA. This is what, sh- if, we did a, if we did an Ancestry.com, spiritual Ancestry.com in each of you this morning and we drew blood, spiritual blood, this is what should be in your spiritual DNA. Blessed is the man or woman who sta- is, remains steadfast under trial. In other words, there's deep joy that comes from receiving God's favor. Do you know where this word blessed is used most often in the New Testament? Think about it. Jesus used it. He did it in the Beatitudes. What are the Beatitudes? Give me some examples. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What are, any others? Blessed are the peacemakers. What? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed uh, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So in our spiritual DNA, there's this potential, this possibility to receive blessedness. And the word blessedness in some translations has been translated happy. It's a lot bigger than happy. It's not like, oh, I feel so good. It's not like uh, the feeling you have after having a really good meal or hearing a good joke. It is a, it is a deep-seated joy that gives you peace and rest in the midst of whatever situation you find yourself in. Whether it's poor in spirit, whether it's hungering for more, and even if it's in the midst of being persecuted for righteousness' sake, James is saying we need to consider it pure joy because as my brother Jesus said, the result of your persecution is you get to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so blessed is the man or woman who's steadfast under trial. And what he's describing is what it's like for the person who gets in the winner's circle. Um, I'll give you an example. You could give me all sorts of examples. Brian might give one after running a marathon or Mimi would. Uh, there's this, this sense that, you know, running a marathon, I would guess, is not just about winning because only, only certain runners are the winners in terms of running the best. But isn't there some sense of happiness that comes or a fulfillment when you get to that finish line and you get the medallion around your neck. I ran the marathon, right? Right? You know, this week, <clears throat> the only person in the, the bling, the only person in, the, in here that cares about this part is the fact that this week is the U.S. Open Golf Tournament. All right? And so one of the things that, one of the clips they, they play whenever they have a tournament like the U.S. Open Golf Tournament is they'll play this clip uh, where they have 
several U.S. Open winners over the last several decades describing what it was like to hold up that trophy, to be recognized as the winner of the U.S. Open, that sense of being in the winner's circle. And whatever that picture is, that's the picture that Paul or James has for us, is that if we have stood this test, we'll be in, in a winner's circle. It's a winner's circle for those who love him and stay faithful even under pressure. If you look at the second part of verse 12, is it still up there? There it is. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which is promised for those who love him. It's, it's a picture of a, a victory wreath that is, that's woven with all the different struggles you and I have had. What all of us are going to receive is something where you look at that crown when you and I get before him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and he hands you the crown, I think what's going to be in it is there's going to be interwoven all these different memories of things that you and I went through. And he's going to sit down with us and he's going to say, see, you thought, you thought this was failure, but this is what you were doing through this. This is what I was doing through you in that time. Remember that time? And then there will be another part of that crown that will have this other special uh, event woven into that crown. And each of us will be showing each other's crowns to each other and, and, and they won't look the same because they're going to have the uniqueness of the promise that we will receive when He says, well done, good and faithful servant to us. And with it comes a mark of joy that, that none of us, that no one else can realize. It's a mark of royalty, a mark of victory. It's a mark of honor and dignity that's promised to those who are faithful and promised to those who love Him to the end. But then he comes to verse 13, and verses 13 to 15 talk about, now think back to this genogram. We've got this genogram going and everything looks great, but then all of us many, many times in our life trip up and fail. And if we were drawing a genogram, instead of this straight line from the Father to us, all of a sudden there would be this broken, wavy line. There might be two lines cutting off the one faithful line between God and the, God the Father and us because God remains faithful, but we're the ones that turn our back on Him. And so in our genogram, there's this broken part. And so verses 13 through 15 talk about the reaction to God that breaks up our spiritual DNA, that causes our spiritual genogram to have major, major discrepancies in what it should look like. And then things change as we get to verse 16. So let's, let's look at the side that's incorrect and has its problems and then end positively with the side that's correct. The wrong side of the family. It's the, it's the, it's the uncle that nobody wants to come to the family reunion. It's the situation where uh, when someone's looking at your genogram, you go, oh yeah, we don't talk about that part of what happened. You know, and all of us have that stuff in our lives, personally. All of us have those stories where we struggled in our faith and we had difficulty and we had times where we, only when we're vulnerable, only when we're willing to be open with others, are we willing to say, uh, what you see is not always what you get. Sometimes my life hasn't been like this. And so that's the time we want to talk about for just a few minutes. 
It's the side that messes with our family tree in such a way that it dishonors the family tree that comes from the Father. It's the devil in our desires, the wrong side of the family tree. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Because that's like saying it's God's fault I'm having problems when I'm the one responsible. In other words, if I commit sin, if I do things that are disobedient to the Father, and then I suffer the consequences and say, why didn't you bail me out? Why did you let me suffer these consequences? What's wrong with you? I thought you were a faithful father. I thought that, I thought, what, what about all the promises that are in the Bible? Which is pretty disingenuous when you think about it. When we're the ones that have been unfaithful, that's really what he's saying. Let no one say, when they're tempted, I've been tempted by God. Sometimes when I'm doing counseling, I'll use this picture, and I'll give you this picture this morning. It's kind of like God says, if you go down the LIE this way and you follow this pathway um, and you stay in the carpool lane and you don't come home on a Saturday like we did yesterday where this theory or this picture doesn't work at all, but there's no traffic. And if you stay on this, if you stay on this pathway, everything will be fine. But then if you have an experience like we did yesterday, you know, the two hours to go 45 miles. You know what I'm all, you know what I'm talking about? That's what Kathy and I experienced yesterday. So, so as you're facing the traffic jam, you're facing trials, you're facing difficulties, and you're struggling with what's going on in your life. And so you start thinking to yourself, maybe God isn't here. Maybe God forgot to help me. Maybe I have a better idea. Anybody ever do that before? Where you think that you have a better idea than God has to help you with the situation? You know, and the question is, how did that work for you? And so you think to yourself, wait, there is a frontage road over there, and if I go off on the frontage road, I'll go down that frontage road, and I'll bypass all that traffic, and I'll just wave as, as, as I go by without knowing the fact that God knows better than I do that there's a dead end at the end of that frontage road. I've had this happen. I can only tell you because I've had this happen. There's a dead end, and the only way to get back to where you started was to go back to where you exited onto the frontage road, which is four or five miles back. And then guess what happens? You get back onto the freeway where all the traffic is, where God wanted you to stay in the first place. And so that's what we're dealing with. It's not God's fault it's that we decided we knew better and we chose a frontage road that was different. And so second part of verse 13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil and He Himself tempts no one. And this is an argument by James really against the whole pagan idea that good and evil coexist and are equal. Good and evil are not equal with one another. And our failures are not God's fault. In fact, the reality is God wants us wants us to succeed more than we do. God does not give us tests to fail. He, give us, he gives us tests to demonstrate what we've learned. Put this verse up on the, the screen for me, Emily. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is familiar to all of us, I think. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. God's way out of temptation happens through a a couple different ways. It happens through his presence. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another passage that, Emily, you could put up for me is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It's through the model that Jesus set for us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people for, he, for because he himself was suffered, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't have to mess up the family tree when we're tempted. We just need to lean into the one that gave us the family tree that represents who we should be. He gives us his presence, his model, and he gives us his guidance. Another passage in Psalm 119, verses one, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Now I have one more thing, and that is his forgiveness. Can somebody quote for me 1 John 1, 9? You all hear that? If we confess our sins, he, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us Say it again, Ken. Help me. Oh, is it up there now? Oh, I can just read it, huh? Okay. So he gives us forgiveness when we fall to temptation. He gives us his presence. He gives us his model to help us. Verse 14, if we'll go back to James, says each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. There was this, uh, there's a Jewish belief that each of us, it's kind of like the picture of the the good guy and the evil guy on your shoulder. It's the impulse. It's, it's the, Jews, the Jewish belief is it's a yetzer or an impulse. And the good yetzer is yetzer hatob and the bad yetzer is yetzer hara. And these impulses are at war with one another, whispering in your ear one way or the other. And we can take something like a natural desire like hunger. We all naturally get hungry. But hunger and fulfilling the normal need that we have turned into gluttony and and eating way too much, is that okay? What is that when that occurs? It's sin. And and it's, it's desire, it's temptation turned to desire that is conceived into this sin. So all of the normal human desires we have, the good yetzer, the hatob, is whispering to us, this is the way to handle that desire. The desire, for, um, uh, the desire for sex, the desire for good things, the desire for food, the desire for uh, enjoyment, the desire for comfort. All of those things are normal desires, but when they are turned into, uh, uh, conceived into sin, then the, the evil yetzer, the yetzer hurrah is whispering in our mind and they, they start messing with the family tree. And so what we need to do is when we have desires, that's a good place to pay attention to where our desires are leading us. You know, when you get hungry, say, okay, how am I doing these days with the volume of food that I eat? You know, when I have uh, a certain particular longing, for comfort and contentment and rest? 
how am I doing? Is, is it turning into laziness? Or is it, turning in, is, it, is it used for the purpose of recreation and Sabbath like God wants it to be? We also have to recognize with all of this, in the wrong side of the family tree, there's a role of the enemy in all of this. And this is the role of James' thinking here. Two passages, James chapter 3, verse 15, said, This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so, when we recognize the desires are leading us down the wrong pathway and messing with our family tree, we need to run like crazy from those things and recognize that it's wisdom that's not coming from God. We know that's what Jesus did. And how did Jesus handle the temptation to follow wrong desires? Simple answer. He used the Scripture. He used the Word to counter the efforts of the enemy to take him down the wrong pathway. Or our family tree would look totally different. Okay? So when we go on, he says, verse 15, this desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do you know how your desires are out of whack? Simple question. Are my desires bringing life to me? Or are they bringing death to me? And if they're bringing death, then I've gotten stuck on the wrong side of the family tree. So let's finish up with this. Conceived desire or temptation leads to death. Tested faith leads to life. So let me take just a few more minutes. Verses 16 through 18, the right side of the family tree. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, which means don't, Stop being deceived about the truth of God's goodness and the source of sin and evil. Recognize that even the demons, they believe in God and they shudder. But don't, don't let yourself be deceived like they are. And the ingredients and the antidote to wrong thinking and wrong believing comes when we remember where goodness exists and where it comes from to us and how it changes the family line. And that's in verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So like, for example, when we, look up at the, when we look up at the sky at night, what happens to the stars and any planets that we can see in the moon? The stars and the planets, they kind of flicker, don't they? They look like they're there and then they're not there and they change. And that's the picture that James has here that God is not like all the stars and the planets, that they flicker and they change. And, and then with shadows, all of a sudden, the shape of the moon changes and all of that. None of that affects God. He doesn't change like that at all. In fact, there is a saying in Jewish culture that says, Blessed be the Lord God who has formed the lights, because the lights change and vary, but He who created them never changes so when we look at all the variation and the shifting of shadow and we see things changing around us, what we should do if we're on the right side of the family tree is use it as an opportunity to say, things may change, but I know someone who never changes. Things may be bad. May, things may be difficult in the situation I'm in, but I know someone who's always good and always brings good things out of difficult circumstances. Verse 18 says, of his own will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know what first fruits kind of literally means? It means favored ones. What, what do most merchants do when they open up their business and they get their first customer? What do you see framed on the wall? The first dollar. And I don't know how God does it, but every one of us are the first dollar to Him. This is my first fruit. Here's another one of my first fruits. Here's another one of my favorite ones. Here's another one of my favorite sons or my favorite daughters. That's what He means when He says first fruits. And I want to end with this story that describes for us perfectly how our family line can be affected so that we stay on the right side of the family tree. Several years ago, I heard a testimony from a pastor named Rich Wilkerson. His uncle, you may know his name, was David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson was actually an evangelist. Way back before there was MS-13 gangs and all of that, David Wilkerson had a tremendous ministry to the gangs in New York City. One particular gang member, Nicky Cruz, who's now in his 80s, said to Dave Wilkerson one time, Preacher, if you don't shut up, I'm going to cut you into 100 pieces. And Dave Wilkerson said, Nicky, if you do that, all 100 pieces will still be saying God loves you. And so Nicky Cruz is a testimony of a family lineage that came from Dave Wilkerson. Well, Rich Wilkerson, Dave's nephew, was sharing the story that, you know, I'm, I'm now a fourth-generation pastor. But he said the story could have been different. The story could have been a lot different. Because my great-great-great-grandfather, I think it would be, actually had been a murderer. And he, for some reason, had been released from prison. He said, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know why he was released. But when he was released from prison... He was wandering the streets, not knowing what to do with himself, didn't know where to go, didn't know where his family was, and he walked into a church. And as he walked in the church, he heard this pastor preaching a message about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he invited people to come forward if they wanted to give their lives to God and see their lives change, and he thought, I don't have anything to lose. And so he went to the altar of that church, and he gave his life to God, and he became a preacher. He became a pastor. Rich Wilkerson says, think about the, the fact that if my great-great-grandfather had not been released from prison, if he had not providentially wandered his way into a church, how different my family tree would look. And so the encouragement I want to leave us with this morning is this. Every one of us here are the Father's legacy. And it doesn't matter what our family tree looks like. Every one of us are the first fruits of the family tree. We either are the continuing legacy of a family tree or we are the beginning of something different so that when your sons and your grandsons and granddaughters and great-granddaughters are drawing their genograms, they go, you know what? My mom, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, they changed our family tree because they were the ones that were willing to give their lives to the pressure and the trials 
so that they would receive one day the crown of life and the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I'd like you to bow your heads with me. And we need to do two things as we finish. One is, everyone, not everyone, but a number of you I know, you have people that are in your family tree that you just as soon forget. And sadly, it could be a mom or a dad. And there's not a lot you can do about it except to acknowledge that and ask God to redeem what was lost. Maybe you need to forgive. Maybe you need to let bitterness go. Days like Father's Day just brings back nothing but frustration and headache for you. And so we're going to go after that this morning. We're just going to ask God to help us with that. And then I want to pray that God would empower all of us to carry the Father's legacy and be the ones that carry a family tr- that, that begin to draw a family tree that looks different, maybe different than the rest of our family does in a way that represents the Father, the Heavenly Father. So would you pray with me? Lord, I want to pray first of all for anybody that is struggling with relationships in their family. And whatever those relationship, relational problems are or may be, I pray for peace. I pray for healing. I pray for reconciliation. And I pray for your goodness to come out of those situations. And then I pray for everyone here this morning as the first fruits, as the favored ones. That no matter what our family line looks like, that we would first of all represent the Father. So that when people see us, they see the Father. Help us to represent steadiness and faithfulness and a supernatural ability to stand strong in the face of trial. And just help us with all those things we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.